Is there a balance for the perfect Valentine's gift? Is there a balance between the personal and the indulgent? I've run the gauntlet between buying my wife a massage when her back was acting up to a simple box of chocolates. One thing I've learned through 40 plus years of marriage, plan on eating out. As we get older, we look for ways to save and also avoid the crowds. Our solution this year, I'm taking her out Friday night when a restaurant won't be so packed. Whether flowers, old-fashioned candy, or just a card, Valentine's is a good time to say I love you. Of course, it's a secular holiday, but it can take on special meaning if you're someone who follows Christ. We take the secular and make it spiritual. It's a good time to remember that Jesus' love for us is highly personal, and he even loves us with indulgence. Valentine's can be for Christians, too. Welcome to Haven Today. I'm Charles Morris, sharing the great story that's all about Jesus. And on this Tuesday, just ahead of Valentine's Day, we're continuing in a series called The Glory of Marriage. And David Wollen, our new president and host, do you have any special plans with Marcy for Valentine's Day tomorrow? Well, Charles, similar to you and Janet, we're looking forward to dinner out. I think your advice a moment ago is spot on, plan on eating out. Um, but for other parents out there with young kids at home, you'll know it's no easy feat on Valentine's Day. So we're excited just to get some uninterrupted time to talk. Uh, what about you and Janet? Any special plans? Well, I mentioned dinner out after Valentine's Day. But I did buy her a card, and I will be patiently trying to craft a carefully worded message to her just to say, I love you, and thank you, Lord, for all the years you've given us together. Hmm. Well, with that, Charles, let's turn to the program today. In our time together, we're going to be going back and looking at the first wedding in history. We know in the beginning God created everything by the power of His Word And the contrast is so striking because there in the first chapter, it's an explosion of God's creative power, and then suddenly it's a quiet, intimate setting in a garden, and he creates the first marriage. Is it a love story? It sure is. But it's actually far, far more than that. What if the universe that we live in is in fact a massive honeymoon suite? Well, I might ask, what in the world was Ray Ortland talking about? Intriguing, isn't it? Stick around to hear the answer in a moment. Ray has written a book that contains some of the boldest, most helpful, and biblical statements about marriage I've ever heard. And then after the program, we'd like to send you his short book called Marriage and the Mystery of the Gospel for your gift to the ministry. In this book, Ray traces marriage through Scripture, from the first marriage in the Garden of Eden to the ultimate marriage in the book of Revelation. And he lays out a big vision of marriage that shows Christ's covenantal love for his bride and his church. And speaking personally, Charles, I'm a really big fan of this book. I think it's going to strengthen the faith of every Christian who reads it because it highlights God's committed, steadfast love for us. Will it strengthen your marriage? You bet. But it has the potential to do much more than that. So after the program, I want to invite all our listeners to come and visit us online. Make a gift to the ministry and request this resource, Marriage and the Mystery of the Gospel. 
Just visit haventoday.org. That's haventoday.org. And while you're there, download a sample chapter from the book, or you can call us after the program, 865-HAVEN. Again, that's 865-HAVEN. And now to get us thinking about this promised moment we look forward to as believers in Jesus, here's Casting Crowns with Wedding Day. There's a stirring in the throne room And all creation holds its breath Waiting now to see the bridegroom Wondering how the bride will dress And she wears white And she knows that she's undeserving She bears the shame of history But this worn and weary maiden not the bride that he sees. She wears white head to toe, but only he could make it so. When someone dries your tears, when someone wins your heart and says you're beautiful, when you don't know. Today, she stands before you and she wears his righteousness. She will be who he adores. This is what he made her for. When someone dries your tears, when someone your heart and says you're beautiful when you don't know you are when all you belong to see is written on his face when love has come and finally set you free in the hand that bears the only scars and heaven touch her face in the last tears she'll ever
Texas, casting crowns on a haven today called the Glory of Marriage. And that was their version of Wedding Day on this haven today. I'm Charles Morrison. Do you remember the last wedding you attended? What stood out for you? Perhaps it was the location or maybe the venue, maybe the food and drink. It's been reported that couples now spend on average $33,000 for a wedding. But the first wedding in history was held in a simple garden, a venue like no other wedding in history. There was no guest list, just three parties attending, Adam and Eve, and even the Lord. He was officiating. There are two perspectives, I think, on that first wedding. Genesis 1 gives us the view from a high altitude. Then turn the page, and Genesis 2 brings us right into the center of the action. Remember what happened? After creating Adam, God didn't immediately create Eve. He waited. First, he had Adam name the animals. The Lord wanted Adam to know that none of these creatures would be a suitable helper for him. He needed a helper who was like him but yet also different. So the Lord made this helper for Adam from Adam. And after seeing his bride, Adam wrote the first ever love song. This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. Scripture then telling us that is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked. And they felt no shame. Now, the first wedding came off splendidly. In Genesis 1.28, we read God's word to the happy couple. God blessed them. And he said to them, be fruitful and multiply or increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. But sadly, shortly after that first wedding, we read about the first sin. You know the story. There was that serpent that found his way into the garden. He was a clever serpent. He came up to Eve and asked if the Lord really said they weren't able to eat from any tree in the garden. And of course, that was not what God had told them. But the serpent began to plant seeds of doubt. I think we can say that every single sin we commit arises from the question the serpent asked, did God really say? It took some convincing, but Eve did fall prey to the serpent's deception. She began to doubt God's goodness. Why would God tell us not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? She started to doubt God's faithfulness. Will we really die if we eat the fruit? What's the worst that could happen? And then on to Genesis 3, 6, and 7, there's the rest of the story. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. And then the eyes of both of them were opened. They realized for the first time they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings from themselves. At this point in the story, David Wolin, this picture is pretty bleak for us, isn't it? Terrifying, actually. I think for Adam and Eve, colossal, consequential beyond reckoning. And it's interesting. I think that sin entered the world, as Ray Ortland wrote in his book, as a catastrophic betrayal of our marital innocence. We know from the text of Scripture that Adam was present right there, and Satan cleverly inserted something into the breakdown of marriage then that continues today. Adam was present and passive. 
Eve took over and spoke on both of their behalf. It was an inversion of what God had created. Adam could have stopped it, but he didn't. He didn't even speak. He abdicated his role. He took the role of helper. Eve stepped into leadership and headship, speaking on behalf of them both about what God had said to Adam. But instead of gaining enlightenment, as the serpent had promised, they felt their shame acutely. They couldn't bear it, and they tried to hide it with loincloths, which, by the way, is exactly all of our instincts when we fall into sin. We do the same with the shame of it. We want to hide it from ourselves and, if possible, from God, hoping maybe he won't notice. Well, the Lord did notice. He curses the serpent. He curses the man and the woman and evicts them from the garden. From here on out, they're spiritually dead and under the curse. Now, if you're reading the Bible for the first time and you didn't bring all of your background knowledge into what you were reading, you might think that this is the end of marriage itself. Their sin broke the relationship with God. They were cast out of the garden, but God did not cast them out of marriage. Isn't that interesting? Marriage endured as God intended that it should. And just as the image of God was not removed from humanity at the fall, but was marred and disfigured by sin, but still remaining intact, it's the same for marriage. It remains intact for a reason. You know, this morning I was reflecting about something, Charles, that we heard Ray Ortland say in yesterday's program about how marriage is the wraparound bracket of the entire Bible. It's not merely a theme among other themes that just help illuminate the gospel, but marriage is the very category in which the gospel is understood. So marriage is primary there in the first chapters of Genesis and in its glorious fulfillment in the last two chapters of Revelation, where the lamb and the bride enter into their marriage, an eternal covenant of marital love. This is the ultimate outcome of all that God created in the beginning. It's the happily ever after of the great story over which God is sovereign, the story that he's telling. And we can state this boldly. In marriage, it's the glory of God on display. It's the reason for which human beings were created in the first place, to be the bride of Christ, enjoying his love and glorifying him into eternity. All right then. That's vitally connected to why the Bible tells us that we're created in the image of God. Now, why would God do that, create us in his image? I think in light of the total view of the Bible and what the Bible says about marriage, it must be in part because it was always God's plan for the son to take on flesh and redeem his bride. As Hebrews 5 tells us, to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. Because the joy which Christ anticipates and looks forward to is the eternity that he and his bride will enjoy forever. In his book, Marriage and the Mystery of the Gospel, Ray Ortland described this so wonderfully. Listen now to the joy in Ray's heart as he talks about this biblical concept with his publisher. What if the universe that we live in is in fact a massive honeymoon suite? And the champagne is there on ice, and the pleasant music is playing, and so forth. If insanity is not connecting well with reality, then our unbelief is insanity. And uh, our mechanistic view of reality is a a kind of blockage uh, inhibiting our capacity to connect with the actual love of God. 
the categories that we should be dealing with as we perceive reality are not natural versus supernatural. Because if God exists at all, then it's natural for God to exist. It would be oddly unnatural for God not to exist. Therefore, the real categories are not natural versus supernatural because the supernatural we will always tend to marginalize. But rather, the categories are seen and unseen. And the unseen is the glorious goodness and love of God in Christ for his bride, the unworthy and the undeserving. And he's right there. He's just unseen. He's not even far away. (laughs) And we are here in the scene. And by faith, just believing the Bible, believing the gospel, we can then have our eyes opened to the dramatic love of God. Single people are married forever. Married people are the metaphor for the real marriage. We have all been swept away into this glorious unseen reality which the seen helps us to imagine and perceive and savor and appreciate and cherish and revere. That's why people get married, to help us see that reality. This is Haven Today, and that was Dr. Ray Ortland. I'm Charles Morris here with David Woolen. And we want to give a special thanks to Crossway, the publishing house, for letting us share some of Ray Ortland's biblical reflections on marriage. He'll be back with us in a moment to share more. After Eden, we see this domino effect in the breakdown of marriage. By Genesis 4, we read about the first instance of polygamy, a descendant of Cain with two wives. By Genesis 6, the demonic realm has inserted itself into marriage in what's a highly debated section of Scripture. Now, we're not going to get into that debate except to note that marriage has become the devil's playground and the result is God's judgment through the flood. Humanity gets a reset through the line of Noah, but dysfunction in marriage continues. I'm putting that mildly in the stories of Abraham and Jacob. Their stories show us polygamy without a lot of commentary on it, but that doesn't make it prescriptive or normative. The story does not paint a beautiful picture and say this is good. The stories show us that this is bad and how these departures from God's design for marriage have disastrous outcomes. Still do. And Charles, I think it's helpful to note here that later on, much later on, it's the Lord Jesus himself who goes back to Genesis and reaffirms God's original design for marriage. And we see that in Matthew 19 where it says, Some Pharisees came to him to test him. They asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? And what does Jesus say? He quotes directly from Genesis 2. Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning, the creator made them male and female and said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. Okay, there's something worth noting here. Jesus has one more thing to say, but this part is not him quoting Genesis. Now he's interpreting Genesis, telling us what it means and adding a critical insight about what happens when one man and one woman are married. He says they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no man separate. Now, he's answering a question on divorce, but he's also answering an unspoken question, which is what happens when a man and a woman get married? 
The Bible's telling us something mysterious and beautiful, even prophetic, is happening. God is creating one out of two. Why is this important? What's the point? What's prophetic? Well, Paul makes it clear. God is pointing us to something even greater. He's pointing us to that for which we were created. He's showing us in categories we can understand in the experience of our own lives and marriages. He's showing us in categories we can understand in the context of our own marriages. He's showing us what Christ has promised for us, the eternal relationship that we'll enjoy with him into eternity, the nature of his great love for us. Let's go back to Ray Ortland one more time with an insight into why marriage is actually a gospel matter. Marriage is a gospel matter because when a man and woman on their wedding day stand side by side and take their vows, we are watching the gospel Mm. being enacted Mm. before our eyes. The Son of God stands there and gives himself to us completely and eternally. He takes vows Mm. never to leave us or forsake us, to give us his whole heart entirely Mm. in all our need. And we stand there. He says, I do. And Mm. we say, I do. And God joins us together forever. I love the way Martin Luther put it. What an amazing and happy thought that the Holy Son of God comes to us little prostitutes and gives himself in all his righteousness and holiness to us, all his cleansing. And we give him all our desperate sin and need and failure, all our shortcomings, weaknesses, and we are covered completely by all that he is. And Luther said, is this not a happy arrangement? The church's one foundation is Jesus Christ, her Lord. She is his new creation by water and the word. From heaven he came and sought her to be his holy bride. With his own blood he bought her, and for her life he died. Yet she on earth hath union with God the three in one, and mystic sweet Whose rest is one Oh happy ones and holy Lord give us grace that we Like them the meek and lowly On high may dwell with thee Like them the meek and lowly On high may dwell This is Haven Today and a program called The Glory of Marriage. And that was the Norton Hall Band and their version of an historic Christian hymn, The Church's One Foundation. David Wolin, it was great to hear from my old friend Ray Ortland. He's in Nashville now on the program. 
His father, of course, was the speaker before me, just as you're the speaker after me. I think it's safe to say that his short and sweet book on marriage really touched our hearts. Yeah, it sure has, Charles. There's so many Christian marriage books out there about how to have a better marriage or fix a broken marriage, and they certainly have value. Um, But I think when we see the foundational purpose of God's design for marriage, it's life-changing. And that's at the heart of what Ray Ortland was writing about in his book, Marriage and the Mystery of the Gospel. And something I'd like to point out is that this biblical concept is not only helpful for married people, it's for every Christian. Marriage is not just the beauty of human romance, it's leading to a divine romance. And if more Christians were to understand this gospel, I think we'd be a lot more effective in our churches, in parenting, in conversations, in love with friends and family and even unbelievers. That's right. And so as a thank you for each of our listeners for their support of this ministry, we'd like to send you Ray Ortland's new book, Marriage and the Mystery of the Gospel. It's our thank you for your gift. So would you visit our website? You can see a sample chapter there on the website or even watch a short video we have with Ray. But then make your gift at haventoday.org. That's haventoday.org. Or call us now. Our lines are open. 865 Haven. Once more, that's 865 Haven. I'm Charles Morris. And I'm David Wolin. Thanks so much for joining us. Won't you come back again tomorrow? When on Valentine's Day, we're going to celebrate the greatest love story ever told. The story that's all about Jesus. Here on Haven Today. Here for your encouragement and your walk with God. This is David Wolin with Haven Ministries inviting you to anchor your day in God's Word. I love a good book, always have, but there was a time in my life when I lacked the discipline to put the book down when I needed to. I'd often stay up reading for hours into the night. Eventually, I had to admit my habit had become unhealthy. Sounds crazy, doesn't it? Reading? Unhealthy? But anytime something good becomes something ultimate in our hearts, it's a problem. Sometimes with practical implications, like waking up tired, but there are spiritual implications too, because only Jesus deserves our ultimate affections, and He's the only one who can satisfy the deepest longings of our hearts. As Jesus said, I have come that they may have life, and have it to the full. Anchor Devotional can help you keep your eyes on Jesus. Visit GetAnchor.com.